You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past, the podcast that delves into lesser-known histories and explores their relevance to modern issues. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Sarah Scott about her career as an archaeologist in Montana. Welcome, Sarah. Oh, glad to be here. <laughs> so great to have you. We're going to go ahead and introduce you to our audience before we start, um, start in asking you some questions. So Sarah has worked in the field of archaeology for over three decades. She earned her master's and PhD degrees in anthropology from the University of Oregon and the University of Montana, respectively. Her dissertation focused on ancient trade and trail networks and new ways to analyze archaeological data collected over 70 years ago. Sarah joined the staff of Montana State Parks as a Heritage Resources Program Manager in 2007 and continued in that position until 2019. Before that, Sarah was the Historic Preservation and Interpretive Specialist for the U.S. Forest Service at Helena and Lewis and Clark National Forests. Publications by Sarah, which have appeared in Plains Anthropologists, the Journal of California and the Great Basin Research, and International Journal of Historical Archaeology and Archaeology in Montana, include articles on pre-contact trails, rock art, teepee rings, wiki-ups, and chipped stone tool production strategies. That last one being a real hallmark of of archaeologists, right? Chipped stone tool production (laughs) strategies. Sarah, that's quite an impressive um, resume, and we didn't even get through the half of it. So welcome. We're excited to have you here. Yeah, Sarah. We're so glad that you're here. And Sarah, you know, you and I have known each other for quite a few years. And I was trying to think back as we were preparing for this podcast, trying to think back to the first time we met. And I'm sure it was probably at a Montana Archaeological Society meeting quite a few years ago. And since that time, we've We've seen each other at meetings, and we've uh, worked a little bit together in different capacities and collaborations. So it's so I'm so glad you're here today. And I just wanted to um, say thank you for for being a, a woman in archaeology, but not only that, but a leader in archaeology for women of my generation. Because of course, when I first started going to archaeology meetings in Montana. There were just a handful of women at the MAS meetings, at the Montana Archaeological Society meetings, and that included you and Ruth Ann Knudsen, who we lost a few years ago, but also Becky Kalavig, Becky Timmons, Terry Wolfgram, Mitzi Resilian, and those, you and those women are the ones that we really look to as 
those who are blazing the path that we then followed. So by you blazing that path, it really made it easier for my generation to follow in those footsteps. So thank you for doing that first and foremost. Of course, now there's a lot of women going into archaeology and anthropology. I think I read a study that said that more women were graduating as in anthropology de- departments than men, which I think is great because we have a lot of time to make up for. <laughs> um, women and men look at archaeology different and, you know, and not just that binary. There's many gendered ways of looking at archaeology. And so we have a lot of work to do to make up some of those um, lost years. So, th- but thank you, Sarah, for for kind of being a trailblazer for me and uh, many other women in the field. Absolutely, and this is probably completely inappropriate to say, but also um, Sarah was somebody to look up to because she showed us that you didn't have to dress like an archaeologist to be an archaeologist when you go yes. to meetings always very tall and elegant yes and so yeah so you know very, and so fashionable right yeah yeah yes we, she yes. would be at home anywhere but yeah. um yeah so good for the field in so many ways thanks yeah. sarah thanks sarah so sarah um i'm going to start off with questions and i just want to um ask you if you can tell us a little bit about when you first knew you were interested in archaeology, thinking back, and and how you realized that this was going to become your career. Yeah, that's such a good question, and I did have to think back on that. When did I finally realize that this is what I wanted to do? But in college at the University of Montana, there was an archaeological field school Um, which I took and immediately fell in love with that. And then fellow classmates um, in that class, they were working just when executive order, which is something that Nixon signed into law about really kind of um, keeping agencies, like holding them to task for protecting historic and archeological sites. And so agencies like the Forest Service were starting to hire people. And so I was hired for a seasonal job. I was just 20 years old, um, but spent that summer as an intern working with other archaeologists, Milo McLeod, who you both know. Yeah. Um, and during that summer, it was doing archaeological survey um, via backpacking. So we were in these very remote areas, carrying backpacks, stomping around through the brush. And I really fell in love with how you determine where to look for archaeological sites, where are the places that you look for a miner's or a trapper's cabin, all those things, and and learning how to suss out those clues so that you could find those resources. And so um, initially, you know, doing that seasonal job, and then others followed, but they were all seasonal jobs. And then I did eventually... Uh, get a job with the State Historic Preservation Office in Helena, and then realized um, that I didn't really want to do a desk job because I enjoyed so much being out in the woods when you can combine hiking around plus finding and recording sites. So it was a really nice blend of nature and science. Um, So I think I really was sold on it just from those early years. And those were the first like three or four years out in the field. So that that definitely helped make my decision to be an archaeologist. 
Is it something you ever thought about when you were much younger? Did you ever, were you ever an early collector or somebody that was really interested in old things, even younger, and then found you could study that in college? Or did you just encounter it for the first time, do you think? Um, no, um, actually, I um, went to high school in Dayton, Ohio. And I remember one of my friends took me out to this archaeological excavation that she was working on with other scientists like with a university and they were excavating human bones and i remember just feeling uncomfortable about it mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you know oh this is interesting that you're doing this but you're excavating human remains and i wasn't sure even as a high schooler what i thought of that so but that was kind of my first contact with archaeology was in high school okay interesting um, all right. So the, the field of archaeology, um, as we've kind of alluded to already, has gone through a lot of changes. Um, laws were passed that, as you mentioned, more tightly regulated preservation and management of historic and archaeological sites on public lands. So under National Historic Preservation Act, even the National Environmental Preservation Act, then the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, this is all 1960s and 1970s. And then again with um, NAGPRA in the 1990s, which I'll say this time is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. I failed to spell out that acronym in a previous podcast. In our last (coughs) podcast, we talked about that afterwards. We said, well, that's one, you know, we should really say out loud because, you know, it's hard for a lot of people to know what We get so used to just saying it. Yes, the Native American (laughs) Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, 1990. Um, The earlier sets of laws, as we all know now, really expanded these employment opportunities that probably came along at a great time for you when you were going through college, as you mentioned. Um, So both within state and federal land management agencies, as well as that big opportunity for private sector contract archaeologists, those that come in and do cultural resource management and get hired on contract either by the federal government or in places where other private industry is building, and you have to make sure you have archaeologists come in um, to protect or move or excavate sites that are in the right-of-way. So did those opportunities that were opening up paths for archaeologists in the 80s and beyond um, affect your decision to choose the particular career path you did? Did you ever consider academia And um, I ask this because especially for women, you know, when I think when we consider marriage and having children or the potential, those things may affect our choices of where to live um, and when to maybe take a break from work um, if we can. So just interested to sort of understand if you ever considered CRM or academia at all. Yeah, you know, as I said, I started out working for the Forest Service, so doing seasonal jobs, and then from that realized that I needed to get a higher level of education. So um, started graduate school at the University of Oregon, which was, you know, a, a situation that, you know, now that I look back, maybe it wasn't so bad, but it seemed pretty cutthroat at the time, you know, oh. working on my master's degree, this would have been in the 80s. But one of the people um, that I developed a friendship with, she was in the PhD program there. And so I got my master's, she got her PhD. And when she got her PhD, she was looking for an academic job. 
and applied at Portland State University, where the one position that was open, there were 200 qualified applicants. Um, So I watched her go through that process. And also one of my main professors, Don Dumond and Mel Akins, um, Don especially, just pretty much was pretty emphatic about, you You know, you guys aren't going to get an academic job. You're going to have to figure out another line of work. So I think hearing some of that, it wasn't necessarily compelling to try academia. Um, but even in with the agency jobs that I had or my husband, who's also an archaeologist, um, we definitely had to move around a lot. And I did, as part of my career, work for a very large consulting firm, CH2M Hill, which now is Jacobs Engineering, um, but for 10 years. And, Hmm. you know, that, again, is, uh, that's a hard lifestyle, too, because it's, you're going where the work is, and they worked in the Marshall Islands, Kennedy Space Center. And at that time, I was having uh, young kids And so having babies and then being put in a situation, you know, where you need to travel, it just really didn't go together. So my husband and I have definitely had a real push pull in terms of who's getting a job and moving where or who's going to graduate school where and then the other is following. So we've had and we've been very nomadic. We've lived a lot of places as a result of just trying to maintain two dual careers in a profession that's, you know, I sometimes think of like, gosh, if we were both nurses, we could go anywhere and find work. But both being archaeologists, usually in a lot of smaller towns, there's one. And yeah, so, that's right. kind of it. Yeah. And right. it's it's also true if you're both professors. So sometimes you get that spousal hire, but sometimes, it, you know, so it's, it, I guess, any route you go. But Gosh, what you said about the CRM uh, or the the consulting job you had, that sounds like it was a lot more difficult than I imagine. I kind of, in my mind, it sounds cushy because it sounds corporate, but it's not. No, no. no. Okay. Wow. She's shaking her head for those (laughs) who can't see her. Yeah. No, and I had no idea (laughs) it would send you all over the place like that. And I guess it depends on who you're doing that consulting work for. That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, they had a fairly high multiplier. So things had to be done very quickly. Um, And so that also was, you know, a compromise of mm. your own ethics. Okay, here's this project, but you have two weeks to do it in. But it really should, if you're doing it right, take six. But, well, what are you going to do? Yeah. And two, and then you don't feel very good about it, or you just do the best that you can. So it it involved a lot of compromise. So by comparison, I see um, working for agencies like state parks or the Forest Service or the BLM as being a way more cushy job than being in private consulting. Yeah, okay. and you get to do long-term projects and you get to work with your community. I'm sure it's a very different um, opportunity that way. Right. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of leads me into my next question then. You know, um, you did work kind of at the end of your your career then for um, agencies. You worked for the Forest Service and you worked for state parks. So can you just talk a little bit about that and, and how, um, you know, kind of your favorite and least favorite parts of working for those agencies as an archaeologist? Yeah, I have to be careful and yeah. 
for my cynicism. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, politically, we'll have to. <laughs> and we can You're edit anything you need us I'll to edit. Yeah. This one. <laughs> but, you know, I found um, I loved working for the Forest Service, and I only left that job because my job was eliminated, sadly. Um, mm. But there were a couple of times working for the Forest Service. One was um, recording the Hellgate pictograph site, which was on the Helena Forest near Helena, maybe 25 miles from Helena. And then another up in the Sun Canyon, um, recording the Sun River site there, another big rock art site. But both of those instances involved camping out for a week. And then, you know, you're out in nature at night, listening to streams, hearing animals. And then during the day, you're doing rock art recreation. And you just kind of get into this dreamy world. And you're really, particularly with rock art, you're really close to it. And you're watching things change as the light changes and the shadows change all day. It really was a wonderful experience. Again, the marriage of the science of archaeology and being outside and all the things that you can gain from the natural world. So just not only intellectually, but just emotionally as well. That's like Uh, the best of the best is when you get to be out in the field. Oh, I love that. I mean, I love being and, you know, working for the Forest Service, too. You know, there was an element of that being in isolated areas, just the wildlife experiences were amazing. You know, you're sitting down resting for a second and all of a sudden this herd of elk is coming by at really close range. And you just sit there while these animals are stomping around. Um, So there were some really incredible experiences with wildlife as well. But, you know, I think that was the positive aspect is the being out, the marriage of science and nature. And probably the harder parts were um, where you're working for an agency and you're managing. And this is especially with state parks. Things have gotten much better now um, than they were, say, in 2007. But, you know, state parks has eight National Historic Landmark sites, 10 sites that are listed on the National Register. They are, many of them, nationally significant. And so you're trying to advocate for the best um, for the resource and also preservation for the resource, whereas other managers that are higher up in the hierarchy from you, they want to put in infrastructure and roads and campsites and um, latrines and things that maybe have there's a resource conflict there and so that was always something really difficult to negotiate and you do your best to advocate for the resource but a lot of times you don't win and um, not as like a personal thing but the resource doesn't win And so you do the best that you can. And I think in that situation, it's a negative, but you do try, I learned to be as proactive as I could to try and stay ahead of what was happening. So you could kill the bad ideas before they really got any legs. So that would be kind of the the negative side of it. I think it really turned me as a person into a real fighter that, you know, in other parts of my life, maybe where I didn't need to fight, I found myself fighting just because you really had to build up that momentum to go into some of those battles, sadly. 
Yeah, oh, you were wow. used to that. You were used to putting on that. Well, that's, yeah, I can see how that would be hard, you know, a hard compromise. So, Sarah, let's move on and talk a little bit about Archaeology Montana. And you mentioned the Hellgate pictograph site. So I'd love to talk more about that because the Hellgate pictograph site, which is located in Hellgate Canyon on the Helena National Forest, is definitely one of my favorite um, rock art sites in Montana. I would actually say it's one of my all-time favorite rock art sites. So it's it's a very impressive place. And I, I haven't even been there, but after doing the research for this and talking to Crystal, it's like that's going to be my first road trip. Yeah, I think now that road I'm trip. this Field spring. Trip. Yeah, <laughs> Sarah, meet us there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this summer, it's a date. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, can you describe the site for us and then tell us about the possible interpretations about the site? And we should probably first mention the difference between pictographs and petroglyphs because there's both at the site. So maybe start off with that, but then tell us more about the site. Explain it for us. Yeah, oh, gosh, it's one of my favorite sites as well. So I concur uh, so pictographs are images that people painted and petroglyphs are um, images where people carved or incised those into the rock. So that's the difference between the two. And um, pictograph, excuse me, Hellgate Canyon has both of those, as you said. And it's, you know, one of the goals of archaeology is to try and record what's out there so that, you know, so that you make a record of what's there. So in case something happens to that resource, you've always got that. And in the case of recording pictographs, we were able to, once that was recorded in 1998 as part of a um, volunteer project, then we could go out later, say five years later, with the original drawings that we made when we were out there and then compare what things look like now versus five years ago. So it's a really good way to track vandalism as well. So as you mentioned, so it's um, about 25 miles or so from Helena. And it's in this broad um, Missouri River Valley floodplain. And then on the north side of that, it are flanked by um, the Big Belt Mountains, which are these faulted and faulted, faulted and folded limestone canyons, which are just amazing. And the pictographs are located up one of those canyons, Hellgate Canyon. And the way that you enter the site, you, you go into the canyon and you're looking up onto these walls of limestone that are, you know, hundreds of feet above you and you're winding your way through the canyon and you round a cliff and then suddenly you see this huge um, flat limestone canvas that's about 100 feet long and maybe 60 feet high with all there's over 280 pictographs on the panel there and um the people that made that i mean the what's interesting about it is there was a the um initially people um applied a red wash of paint underneath the whole face of it and it's it's a very large site and then painted finger line or perhaps um, paintbrush images on top of that red wash. So it really hits you as this awe-inspiring. It, it's kind of shocking when you see it. 
Um, but some of the images that are there, there's human figures, um, there's some animal-like figures, dots and lines and um, circles, all sorts of different compositions um, along this rock face. And in fact, as we're recording it, we had 18 different panels that we um, set up and separated so that we could record this site. And a lot of the human figures are, um, and this comes into the interpretation, they are really like their legs are really elongated or their arms are really long. Some of them look like they're flying or levitating. Um, and it is just a really interesting site. There's um, nested half circles that, you know, there's nothing there. A lot of it is not real representational. Like it isn't like a figure of a horse. There's nothing like, there's no horses or guns depicted. So we know that it was before 1700s, but um, Jim Kaiser, who you both know, has written a book on um, Plains Indian rock art. And he sees this site as a real typical part of this Foothills abstract tradition rock art. And when I say tradition, it just is a way to group sites together that, are, that have similar characteristics. They're located in a similar area. And for this type of tradition, it goes from all the way from Alberta down to um, southwestern Montana, all along the Rocky Mountain front. So this is just such an interesting site in the number of images that are there, um, but also by the fact that, you know, you don't see animals that were hunted or things like that. You know, that isn't a part of it. You see snake figures. Um, and the way that the rock art is represented is that, um, you know, some of this, I think, and talking to other rock art people is, you know, the site was probably used for ritualistic purposes. There's a lot of handprints, and I think that's a real signifier of participation in some sort of ceremony, initiation ceremony. And then a lot of the images are the types of images. There's a, a model called the neuropsychological model, which, you know, looks at and when people are in altered states, which shamans would be in if they were going to a site like that to paint images or to help get power from the supernatural, um, you know, they would go through these altered states and there's different phases of those. And in the first phase of them, the types of shapes that people see those are the same for people around the world. So images that you see at Hellgate Canyon, like these nested circles or these really long lines or the dots and little spatters around some of the images, um, those are all things that everybody around the world sees. And you see those in rock art. You see it in South Africa. You see it in Australia. And so there's this universality of it that is just, I think, is so compelling, you know, when you think about it. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, those are some of the ideas um, about the site is that possibly that it was used by shamans. And one, of, one line of thinking is that the, um, the, the rock face itself is kind of a veil between the supernatural, supernatural and the secular world. And so by painting images on the rock face, that enables you to access that other world. And a lot of the images that you see, you can see a snake 
that's going into a crack and then emerging out of a crack. Wow. So it is kind that's of amazing. another worldly feel to it. Yeah. So they're yeah. working with that natural features of the rock with the snake going in and out. Because you see some of that happening sometimes in Paleolithic cave art, too, where they're using yes. the... Okay. I mean, this site is just giving me goosebumps yeah. hearing about it. Can you talk a little, Sarah, about the scratchings at the, at the site, at the rock art site? Yeah, and that was an interesting feature um, out there, too, that we found is a lot of the images, particularly the human figures that were elongated in a couple of the circles, paint was actually scratched out of those images. And you could think, oh, that might be due to vandalism. But we found in one of like a little rock crevice, we found a stone tool with a burn like which would be a sharp end. Um, where you could have used that to actually scrape the paint. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's different thinking on why people would have do, would have done that. Some is to, you know, actually remove some of the pigment into a piece of leather, keep it as a pouch as part of someone's medicine. Um, David Whitley, in, who's a rock art specialist in California, talks about sometimes images were scratched out to cancel the power of that or the people that were there before it's almost you know as if okay this was your place before but now it's mine and i'm going to erase this image from the rock face Mm -hmm. so there's a couple of lines of thinking on the scratching there but um i can't recall the exact number but i would guess um you know maybe 20 percent of the images there are have some of the pigment removed You know, and people also, there are some rock art sites where people, um, native people come back and actually refurbish images. This is really common in South Africa where people go back, visit and redo images. There isn't really evidence for that at Hellgate. Hmm. We're going to take a quick station break for just a second. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Sarah Scott about her career as an archaeologist in Montana and her research on pictograph sites such as Hellgate and Pictograph Cave. So, Sarah, um, sites such as this are things that I imagine many people want to take a hike in or go visit and see. So I'm, I'm interested in then when you were working for the forest um, or even before, how do you deal with allowing the public to access or protecting and preserving? And what sort of vandalism have you seen in the site over the years? So just talk a little bit about that. And, and also maybe there's significance, this particular site may be um, in the present to some of the, the tribes in Montana. Mm-hmm. Um, There was quite a bit when we went to record it in 98. um, There was quite a bit of vandalism there, which really surprised me that people would carve their names on the rock art face. In fact, one of the volunteers said, oh, Barry Dobler, I know him. Oh, wow. Vandalizing sites is against the law. Um, But, you know, there's been a lot of work done on rock art vandalism in California. And what people find is that when you come to a site, a rock art site, when the public does and it's badly vandalized, people are more likely to 
vandalize it further. Mm, but if they come to rock art sites and they're interpreted well and they're well taken care of, people are more likely to be respectful because what what you're showing and what you're mirroring is that there's an agency out there or there are people out there that are taking good care of this, they're being watchful of it. And then, so you are more likely to mind your manners when you're there and putting up interpretive signs, you know, there's a whole way to do that as well. Um, we had an interpretive sign at Hellgate that was in front of the rock art panel and people actually shot at the sign mm -hmm. and then of course shot at the rock art panel as well. So I do think vandalism is a problem. We did hire a rock art conservator, Yanni Laubser, who came and worked with us out there. And, you know, he was able to, through different techniques, you can remove vandalism. Some, um, you know, if you have pencil, things like that is easier to remove than others, but you do your best to try and blend the vandalism in. And what we found is once we remove the vandalism, and it wasn't visible anymore. People have been way more respectful of the site. I was, I visited Hellgate Canyon this summer and I was, and there were a lot more people coming in and out of the canyon to visit it. Um, yet the site was in good shape. There wasn't garbage there. There wasn't evidence of people shooting at the rock art. There, there was nothing like that. So it's good to see after 22, 23 years, things are still looking pretty good. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And that's and great. that's actually really helpful information about the the signage helping to protect and the interpretation helping to actually protect because it's it's um, showing folks that the site is being stewarded and cared for mm -hmm. and respected and looked after. Um, the one thing I should mention too is an important part of that is site monitoring where, mm. where you either have a site steward going out there taking a look at it. So if vandalism occurs, you know um, roughly the time. And then also I think um, getting Forest Service law enforcement in this case, because it's Forest Service land involved in that. So if there is vandalism, that's something that's pursued from a law enforcement perspective, just that this is not tolerated. And I think um, people get the message. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We, we took a group of site stewards out there one year and we went out there with a Forest Service um, law enforcement officer. And it was great to go out there with him and then also um, the archaeologist um, and to um, and have the site stewards see that. And then they were interested in, you know, helping to preserve this place. But um, the it and hearing about the monitoring and how significant that is that if like you said if if people know there's someone going out there once a week or even once a month they they see that person they know that that is that place is under protection of some sort whether it's a site steward or it's the forest service law enforcement or whatever or just the community that keeps people away from vandalism yeah, And we should say, if people are interested in becoming an archaeological site steward, Montana has a site stewardship program that several of the agencies participate in. So they can contact Extreme History if they want to know more about that. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Sarah, you decided we're going to take a little turn here and, and talk about your decision to go back to graduate school to get your PhD, which you completed. And is that in 2014 that you finished? Okay, wow. 
that went fast. Um, <laughs> so your thesis covers two really important aspects of Montana archaeology, the old Buffalo Road Trail and the site of uh, pictograph and ghost caves, that, that the sites that are at the state park near Billings. So I'd like to start with pictograph and ghost caves. Um, many people know about that park. It's just seven miles or so outside of Billings. And the site had been known for a long time to locals. But once there was this big rainstorm, as the story goes, and they realized that the deposits of really a shallow alcove of pictograph cave more than uh, a cave per se was quite deep, the the Depression era works, projects, administration, archaeology, funding was tapped into, and there were excavations that went on at that site between 1937 and finished up, I think, in 1941, although in the area till 1942. Um, so your dissertation, um, you had to delve into those archival materials and records. So I was wondering if you could first tell us a little bit about the archaeology of pictograph and ghost caves, um, and then also about your specific research, which in part was selecting some specific artifacts, some perishable materials from the existing collection at the curation facility in Missoula at University of Montana. And you wanted to be able to produce some new and very much needed radiocarbon dates for the site because there hasn't been much radiocarbon dating wasn't around when the site was excavated. The stratigraphy was complicated um, during those excavations and having really good anchor dates to know the occupation history of that site um, was was important and we, we hadn't really had that. So um, So yeah, tell us about the site and then about your research in particular with it. Yeah. You know, one thing about Pictograph Cave, I'll say, and Ghost Cave, they're, um, they, they're both state, that's part of the state park, but they're dry caves. And so those, that's such a unique environment for archaeology, because instead of things like that are out in the open that will disintegrate, bone, wood will just disintegrate, um, those things were preserved inside the cave. So you have a much more complete record of what people were doing their daily life because they left things behind just day to day. There were over 30,000 artifacts were um, removed from the two caves and included things like um, shell jewelry, shell from the Pacific coast, moccasin fragments, basketry, just a, a huge range of things, um, which were, so it's really an incredible artifact assemblage. Um, but as you mentioned, there was no um, radiocarbon dating at the time, because that didn't come into play until I think the mid fifties. And so, you know, for archeologists, it's like the most important thing is trying to establish a chronology. So we have this cave and there was a huge amount of dirt that came out of both um, Pictograph Cave and Ghost Cave, yet we're not really sure how old it is. Um, there were are some Paleo-Indian looking projectile points um, from both caves, or actually I think just from Pictograph. And so we've called those caves Paleo-Indian Caves and interpreted them as such. So it really seemed important to try and get some radiocarbon information on some of the artifacts. So we had a sense of what sort of time frame we were looking at. And there were um, like a series of 
fortuitous events of um, a Forest Service person, Mike Beckus, who was the regional archaeologist here in Missoula. He was retiring and he had gone to the University of Pittsburgh, where Jim Adavazio, who's a textiles expert, um, was teaching then. And so Jim Adavazio was going to come to Montana to go to this retirement party. And so I immediately, going back to our initial conversation, you know, he's a big wig, but I just jumped on it and asked if he'd be willing to take a look at some of the things from Pictograph K. And he said he was thrilled. So we'd sat in this hotel room for a couple of hours, you know, going, <laughs> going, going through these artifacts. And he is a textiles expert and is really uh, probably the preeminent expert in Great Basin basketry and textiles. So he was so excited to see the basketry fragment from Pictograph Cave. So we looked at basketry, we had a fire stick, there was a tender stick, there were just a few different things that he looked at and was very interested in and was able to just take minute samples from a couple of those which um, he submitted for radiocarbon dating. And that was kind of the beginning of, okay, we have these dates. We ended up with four radiocarbon dates um, the basketry was 1,300 years old. This tender stick was 950. A hearth stick was 450. And then um, we looked at a piece of paintbrush, and that was 250 years old. So we had this already just in looking at a couple of the perishable artifacts. We had this huge, huge range, range. Yeah. separated yeah. by hundreds of years. And so... That really set me up to think about um, the way that Pictograph Cave was excavated. It went down 23 feet, which is really deep. And really you know, deep. with the, yeah. the help of Tim Urbaniak, who, I mean, there were stratigraphy maps of the site that he was able to scan and then put into an AutoCAD program and then develop it into a 3D model of the excavations. And so once we could really see visually how things were excavated, it was pretty easy to see which levels of the cave and then be able to look at the units and the way that they um, labeled their artifacts and figure out which artifacts came from the lowest levels of the cave. And so once I did that, and that was just trying to figure out, you know, something that you could radiocarbon date, bone, um, especially um, shell potentially, but the one shell artifact that was really low, um, buried really deeply, we didn't really want to destroy and so decided to pass that up. But so um, we found um, 10 artifacts that were from different levels of the cave and then sent those in for radiocarbon dating. And some of that, um, the a lot of the artifacts were shellacked, and so is back in the 1940s and 50s when they were excavated. Yeah, and then they shellac. Like the them. first thing they did, let's yeah. slap some shellac on that and write on it too. Yeah. You know, right where it came from. Yep. So yeah. you wrote on it, you shellacked it. Um, but thankfully, it's really easy to get if you cut an artifact in half, a bone artifact, and I used. Um, Form more formed tools, not really tools, but 
where there was a formed edge so that you could tell the bone was modified by humans, not mm -hmm. just an animal bone that may have been way in the bottom of the cave and then submitted those for radiocarbon dating. And you know, one of the things that was really surprising is the dates that came out, the oldest date was 4,300 years. So mm. 4,300 years before present. And um, you know, uh, a lot of the caves, some artifacts that were from fairly low and then the same unit closer to the ground surface, surface that we're sent in, Things that were at closer to the surface were older than things at the bottom. Oh, so you oh my tell. goodness! Oh, no. Okay, so the deposits were really mixed mm. up, and mm. but there were a couple of items that came from the back of the cave near the wall, and the stratigraphy there was much more intact. And then you can get a forty-three hundred-year-old date, and then on top of that, a thirty-eight-year-old, thirty-eight hundred date, and then above that a 3200 date. So you have that sense back there where it's intact, but I think they had all sorts of problem with water running over the edge. They had yeah. wall collapsing. I mean, when you think of something that's excavated down 23 feet, there is an edge to where they're excavating. And so it's really easy for those walls to collapse. So that was the biggest part of the dissertation study, kind of starting with um, being able to get together with Adivasio and the dates that we took were all AMS dates, accelerator mass spectrometer dates, which are more expensive. And so Adivasio was willing to pay for those dates. So oh, good Adivasio. going, Sarah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> However you did that, I know. <laughs> all rolling. Well, a lot of times when you're submitting dates, if you submit a bulk number of dates, you get a better price on it. Uh. So he was willing to just include those, and he sent his dates to Oxford, um, but <laughs> ours went to later um, ones that we did went to Beta Analytic. But oh, yeah. so he was willing to pay for those. So yeah, yeah so so that was really a great start. So the it definitely is not Paleo-Indian then. Um, as you were saying, it didn't go back as far as sort of that initial speculation with um, potentially a Yuma point that I think they thought they had found. Um, so we're talking about roughly 2000 BC would have been the oldest. We were talking about 4,000 years before the present. Um, and uh, and stratigraphy just towards the back of the cave really kind of lining up and, and making sense. I know there was a lot of pack rat middens and other things, carnivores probably denning in there, aside from all the boulders and the spalling and the water. So it sounds like that, plus maybe some questionable um, excavation methods, really made the stratigraphy complicated. That must have been a lot to sort out. Hmm. It was. And without Tim Urbaniak's help, um, he was critical in just trying wow. to suss out what really happened in the excavation. He was really helpful. Fantastic. Yeah. And I think he just finished up his book on Pictograph Caves, so that'll be exciting. Too. Oh, we'll have to we'll have to talk to him I know. about that. The next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sarah, after all this work you've done on Pictograph and Ghost Caves, and and just if we haven't said this already, Pictograph Cave and Ghost Cave are right next to each other. They're not two separate places. They're kind of in this, in a similar area, or in you know, right next to to one another, um, and with all this great preservation, can you tell us what you think about how these caves were used, and were these uh, permanent settlements, or were these winter camps, or were these 
caves just used at certain times of the year. So can you just, in, you know, just give us a picture of how you think people were utilizing these caves, living in these caves, or not? <laughs> you know, I think that um, both Pictograph and Ghost Cave, clearly, I mean, they were um, occupied continually over the last 4,000 years. And the people that lived in this area, they're all nomadic hunters and gatherers. So I don't think um, either of the caves was ever used as a permanent year-round settlement um, because I think you would exploit the resources around it and then you've got to move on. So I think people lived there seasonally, used those sites as a base camp. Um, certainly winter occupation would be something to think about for sure. Um, but sadly, I think the information that we have, you know, if you had a pollen record, um, things like that, plant macro fossils, but those are things that we don't have. We did get a lot of prairie turnips, um, but you know, things like that that would help you get seasonal indicators didn't come out of the excavations. You know, they were, you know, this is back in the Ford, the 30s yeah. and you know, early 40s. They so weren't thinking about those things. Um, they then. weren't thinking about those things. And in fact, a lot of the um, faunal animal remains that they collected, they were selectively collecting some and throwing out others. So, I mean, even that is not really a, a very good record. But I do think that it's safe to say that it was used seasonally, not permanently, um, and that people were kind of coming and going at all seasons with also keeping in mind that Pictograph Cave is just two and a half miles from the Yellowstone River. And that was a huge travel route for people. And I think you have all sorts of groups. There was just a lot of fluidity of people moving in and out and the um, area, the drainage that goes from below Pictograph Cave out into the Yellowstone. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it and I can't. Um, mm -hmm. There apparently they did Oscar Lewis who worked at Pictograph Cave. He did a survey of that and there, you know, found pottery eroding ro up the creek. I think it was loaded with occupation. So it shows that, you know, people definitely were coming from the Yellowstone, Pictograph Cave, than going back. So I think that, um, yeah, so the seasonal aspect of it is, is definitely applies here. I like to think too of um, when Clark was floating um, down the Yellowstone or going back along the Yellowstone, exploring it, that, um, you know, he was going right by Pictograph Cave. And of course, mm -hmm. we see evidence for him later. But, but, you know, you think about sort of how this has been a corridor historically, prehistorically for such a long time, um, such a fascinating place. And I think the reason this site has always been so fascinating to me, too, is it, it seems unusual to me for some other reasons, too. I mean, there's over 100 pictographs in the cave, very few of which you can still see now. Um, apparently, sometimes, though, when... Um, rain leaks in or comes through the sandstone, they they sort of are revitalized a bit when they, it gets wet back there. And so some people have made a lot about what that must have been like, maybe mm. even in the past to have the, this vibrancy only when there was after, mm, after sort of water. Yeah. But the, um, the pictographs come from different time periods. And then we know, as you said, that the cave was occupied now, we know for sure, for at least over 4,000 years periodically. Um, but to me, it seems 
a little bit unusual, and I might be completely wrong on this, but I think of pictograph sites like Hellgate and many others as being these places where they're they're often prominent on the landscape and just right for creating art, but they aren't necessarily occupation sites. There'll be evidence maybe nearby or some things, some other, you know, stone tool manufacturing or something, but nothing like all of the full complement of stuff we would find among hunter-gatherers at a campsite. So I feel like that's a bit unusual at right there in the same place where they're making amazing art on the walls. And then over and over again. And then also there's there's human remains in both pictograph and ghost cave that came out of the excavations. And again, it doesn't seem like most of the mortuary traditions we know for um, Native people, Indigenous peoples to be living on a site where they have burials. The burials would be placed somewhere or people would move on or there'd be scaffolding outside of a settlement. So I find these things fascinating and puzzling. And I just wanted to know your thoughts. And maybe I'm wrong about sort of this being unusual, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on those. Yeah, those are really uh, two interesting points there. You're so right. So So many of the rock art sites that I've seen they aren't places where people live. They're kind of more secluded. They seem like they're really oriented toward ritual, ceremonial behaviors. Like visitation uh, and then leaving. Yeah. And then you leave and you right. like at Hellgate Canyon, the campsites are out along the Missouri and there's a bunch of teepee rings and um, lithic scatter sites out there, but they're not doing that inside Hellgate Canyon. Um, You know, at Pictograph, you know, the interesting thing to think about, and there are other sites, um, there's Medicine Lodge Creek and Little Canyon Creek in Wyoming, and both of those sites are um, inhabited for long periods of time, and then also have pictographs on the wall. Um, So, but what you don't know is, you know, are the people that are living at the site, you could have had people because Ghost Cave um, had a tremendous amount of occupation and you could have had people living in Ghost Cave, but doing ritual ceremonial activities in Pictograph Cave. And then those people leave and then somebody else, another group comes again, just stressing the fluidity and the movement of people another group comes and there's these pictographs well but it's it's winter and it's cold but we're going to camp inside this cave anyway um you know so you those are things that it's i agree that it's interesting um but you probably will never know about that because clearly people were living inside the caves where there's all this rock art on the wall. And um, in terms of the human remains, those there were nine individuals and three kids, you know, but, but some of those, it sounds like in the excavation, the human remains were scattered in a, over a large area. And also one individual, and this is in the field notes when the pictograph cave was excavated, was apparently crushed by there's a you know it's um, sandstone and so it's really friable so big rocks fall all the time and there was a guy that was crushed and he had a quiver of arrows that still had the fletching on them they were hafted um, but he was crushed and so it may have been that there were there was a couple of rockfall incidents that um, resulted in the death of a few people. 
and then people came in and camped and lived in the cave, but they couldn't see the people that were buried under the rocks. So sadly, the context of the burials is not well documented. There's a whole section in William Malloy who wrote um, his dissertation on Pictograph Cave by Snodgrass, but he doesn't talk so much about the excavations. It's more, we have six individuals and here's what they look like and here's three kids and here's the age of the kids. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was, you, you right, right. It you was back when they were trying to figure out, could you figure out tribal affiliation from the, the stature and the cranial measurements? Snodgrass didn't also determine, you know, did that individual get crushed post-mortem, you know, or before. So there's so much we'd like to know more about, you know, from that. But that wasn't the kind of thing they were looking at then. Yeah. But they do, he does have pictures of people's heads and the heads are not crushed. Right. But that doesn't mean that their death didn't result from a rock falling on their body and, you know, then they died. And I will say um, in working for state parks, that was something um, initially that I took on and trying to find where those human remains were. And that was a large effort. We had Sally Thompson help us with that, um, but found some of them at the University of Wyoming. And we were able to, through a very long process that involved NAGPRA and um, consulting with the Crow, we were able to get those remains back and then reinter those, not in the cave, but within Pictograph Cave State Park. Mm-hmm, that's Which wonderful. Is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, did you have any luck figuring out if William Malloy ever had um, notes that might still be at University of Wyoming? I've been talking with his daughter, Bridget, about we have Oscar's notes, but it, I'm quite sure just going through all of William Malloy's stuff that there would have been original notes he would have been taking or keeping, you know, and I, and it just seems mystifying that we don't know where those are. He's so meticulous about everything else. I've asked at University of Chicago with no luck, but you don't, you don't know either, do you? You know, I don't know, but sometimes things come up. Yeah. Um, Danny, Danny Walker over in Wyoming sent me a piece of, here's an artifact that turned up in our collection. Right, right. <laughs> cave. I noticed the distinctive PC on it, and I knew that it was from Montana. Right. So who knows? I mean, those hopefully will turn up, but no, I don't. Okay. And I would be fascinated to see those. Okay, yeah, Bridget and I kind of have a plan to maybe go out there um, uh, to University of Wyoming and and dig in some boxes that maybe haven't been opened in a while. <laughs> um, but back to um, back to Pictograph Cave for a minute before we move on. Uh, there have been several people. I, I sent you one article that have talked about similarities between the representations in Pictograph Cave of shield bearing warriors and other images that look. Um, similar to pictograph sites in Utah, Wyoming, Alberta, parts of Canada, um, a lot along the Rocky Mountain front on the um, sort of eastern side. And I'm wondering um, how that might relate to the discovery by you and James Adavazio that you mentioned of the Basketry fragment and his um, determination that it was 
coiled in a style known among the Fremont and not something that could be mistaken for another group. Now, the Fremont are sort of an archaeological culture found primarily in Utah, a little bit in southwest Wyoming. Um, and if you travel through there, you can visit sites and it, they talk about the Fremont, but they're, they're not necessarily correlated specifically to an um, existing or historical tribe. So the basketry style um, is not known in ethnographic collections, so it's not something that could be mistaken for a much later or historical piece that got in there, and it dated to an archaeological period. So I'm just curious, sort of, what can we do with this information where we're seeing maybe in the art, maybe in the basketry, some connections that people are pointing out with the Fremont. Is there something we can take out of that? You've talked about fluidity and people moving around. So just, um, yeah, give us your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think one thing with that, I certainly um, think at some point in time that 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 connection between the Fremont and Plains people will come out. And definitely, Jim, Adebisio said, yeah, you could drop this along the Fremont River and people would say, oh, yeah, this fits right in because it's really distinctive in terms of like the rod and bundle, the way that it was made. He thought it was a parching tray. Um, so real typical of the Great ba- the Eastern Great Basin. Um, we also have at Pictograph Cave the bear figure, which also is similar to things seen in Utah and Wyoming. And then there's great basin-like um, gaming pieces made of right. bone antler. So those are so cool. Mm, yeah, yeah. But as I, you know, I'm going to keep hitting back on the same thing. But you know, what, were those items, you know, brought to the site by Great Basin Fremont people, or because there was so much fluidity and people were really moving around, were Folks actually, and we know that there are big trading centers, Mandan, Hadatsa Trading Center, Shoshone Rendezvous site in southwestern Wyoming. Perfect place to get, you know, part of a, you know, a Great Basin basketry piece. So, you know, whether people are going to places, trading with people, and then bringing back those perishable remains, or if those people are bringing them to the site, Um, You know, that I can't answer because you certainly have a lot of things in both Ghost and Pictograph Cave that are um, very planes-like, you know, in terms of the projectile point, the stone tool assemblage, all those things are very planes-like. But then you've got these bone, um, you know, fish they look like harpoons. Oh. Yeah, they're bizarre. Harpoons, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which those could have been used, though, on yep. the Yellowstone yep. River, you know, to um, uh, catch fish. So, uh, you know, I think just in looking at, you know, you, we always want to get several different lines of evidence, whether that be linguistic, ethnographic, oral history, to kind of be able to defend your case and your hypothesis. And I think over time, we might get a lot more connections um, that verify that, yeah, you know, Great Basin people and Plains people were interacting, or maybe even there was that fluidity of movement. Um, we may see that. 
You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcast. We are speaking today with Sarah Scott about her career as an archaeologist in Montana and her research on pictograph sites such as Hellgate, Pictograph Cave, and the Buffalo Road Trail. Sarah, did you have some more that you wanted to talk about with Pictograph Cave before we move on? Yeah. One thing I think that in in terms of when you're looking at the rock art, and I think in this case, looking at the bear figure that is so similar to what you would see in the Great Basin, you know, I think when you're assigning ethnicity to artifacts and pictographs, it's a real slippery slope. And again, needing a lot of lines of evidence before you can really securely and confidently say that. And I think as you get later in time where you're looking at biographic rock art, so things where, you know, from the 1700s on, you know, those are things where you have oral histories that um, talk about what's going on. You know, you you know, like looking at some of the uh, horses that were the crow um, carved, those are really distinctive and you can identify them as crow. So the closer you are to the present, I think it's easier to make those assignments. But the further back that you get, you know, like at Hellgate, you know, we know those pictographs are about 1200 years old, given that we've done some radiocarbon dating there. I think making ethnicity statements then, again, with the fluidity of movement, I just think gets really tricky. It's an it's an interesting thing. And, you know, maybe at some point in time, like your colleagues, Scott or- Ortman and Linda, is it McNeil? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, eventually, you know, they're, I, I think they're on to something with the Kiowa. But I, I think that, and as he says, too, you know, these are, this is our hypothesis. Come on. Right. I love I love that approach that he took, which is what you're saying. He's throwing it out there. And to me, it was fascinating. I had Crystal read it, too. Um, I forced her to read archaeology every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and that, the, that he didn't know about the basketry, the Fremont bas- basketry, when he published that article. And I thought it was interesting, too, because you're talking about you know, this basketry fragment that was found a pictograph cave, which kind of aligns with his argument in some ways, but he's also talking about people coming through that area. And he mentions pictograph cave, which a much more recent in time or later period. So it made me wonder, like, was this a place that was known and when there was a big migration? So I love that he's thrown it out there. And you're right. It just is a hypothesis to be further investigated. Um, But I think it gives pictograph cave just a little bit more relevance now i feel like it had had a heyday and then became a you know a state park and um i think sometimes we we feel like we know all there is to know i think there's still a lot of fascinating stuff mm-hmm. still to know and i i feel like the public should should know a little bit more about where where all that research is going um yeah. so thanks so much for the work you did oh you have something else sorry go ahead yeah and i will mention too in terms of basketry um there's all throughout the bighorn basin there are so many sites where basketry similar to what was found at pictograph are also found mm-hmm. i mean i've not seen those but many of them have radiocarbon dates that are right around the same time. Oh, like man. hundred years old. Yeah. Like a trail people- of basketry. This is a dissertation for somebody. 
in the um, Beartooth Mountains, there was recently like a pretty intact, large basket that came out of an ice patch, you know? So I think we're going to continue to find more things like that. Yeah, yeah. That will help with some of those arguments. Right, right, exactly. So I'm going to take a little bit um, of a turn now and talk a little more about some of the work that you did on your dissertation. And, you know, kind of talking about archaeology and thinking about archaeology today, we've talked a lot about excavation, but archaeologists do so much more than just digging in the dirt, you know, and and digging in the dirt and excavating to find out information. They have a lot of other tools and ways that they do that. So one of the things that you did in your dissertation was the investigation of a prominent ancient trail network in Montana called the Buffalo Road Trail. You refer to it as the trail before and after Lewis and Clark expedition because it is a very ancient trail that Lewis and Clark actually followed. Can you tell us a bit more about this trail itself, how it was used, and what methods you had, um, what methods you had to use to investigate it? Some of those tools that archaeologists have in their tool belt besides the trowel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, you know, this was a kind of an interesting study. I'm thankful that I was involved in this. Um, it's probably been the past, and I think of my life is working on this trail. And, you know, part of it was I was working for the Helena Forest, the, Bi- the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial was coming up, and they wanted me to be part of that, and can you investigate Lewis and Clark? And I remember thinking, <laughs> as an archaeologist, oh, no. Know, right? just, like, no, please. <laughs> I was horrified, but actually what it did was, um, you looked at Lewis and Clark, but of course they're like, you know, beating feet across, you know, these areas, they left nothing behind, but what you do have is what happened before and then what happened after. Mm-hmm. And so it's just such an interesting story in the area that we're talking about working for the forest service. I just looked around the continental divide, um, North of, uh, Lincoln, Montana. That was where the Helena forest had land up there where the trail ran through. But of course you're going to look at the whole trail and the Buffalo road trail is goes along the Blackfoot river. It starts at, um, the confluence with the Clark fork. And then, as I mentioned, it goes all the way up over the continental divide and then out onto the plains. And it was used for thousands of years by uh, Columbia Plateau Indians who would make these yearly seasonal treks over the Continental Divide to hunt buffalo. And buffalo were hugely important to them, um, not only for food, but the robes, the horns made all sorts of utensils. I mean, they they were incredibly valuable. So these were a part of their life is to make these traps treks back and forth and there's archaeological sites located all along the trail um, that document the fact that people were using this linear trail going along the Blackfoot River so we've got generations of people traveling with dogs likely and using travoys and then um, people were using horses eventually in the 1700s and then you've got Meriwether Lewis in the 1800s traveling this trail 
he was really um, on very high anxiety. He had a very high anxiety level as he was going through there because he knew he was about ready to enter Blackfeet Indian territory. And he was, there's some great quotes of being on our guard day and night. And he's traveling on, I mean, so many people have this vision of the Lewis and Clark expedition out there bushwhacking through the woods. (laughs) They were traveling on these well-established roads and Indian guides that told them about the road said, you can't miss it because it's a road. Yeah, because it's got hundreds, if not, you know, thousands of years of people continually traveling, traveling along this road. So it's just, it's this really amazing cultural landscape of uses of Indian use, Lewis and Clark, and then later you've got missionaries, and then you've got explorers and miners and ranchers, and it's all just overlaying one piece of history over another piece of history. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. just an incredible spot. So um, in the particular area that I was able to study, that's a bigger history of the trail, but just actually on the ground, um, it was a five mile segment. And thankfully, uh, Bob Bergantino, who's at uh, Montana, was at Montana Tech, he spent 30 years going through the Lewis and Clark journals, trying to figure out just based on all their compass readings, exactly where the Lewis and Clark Trail went. So we had, and then he plotted it on Topo Maps. So we had his Topo Maps, you know, in terms of investigation um, to go by in terms of where on that five mile stretch is the trail on the Helena National Forest. Um, Plus before even stepping foot in the field, you're looking at, you know, ethnographies about Indian tribes who use the trail, historic documents, who else was up there, Um, And also, um, which I'll get into a little bit more, consulting with tribes that use those areas, the Salish tribe, the Blackfeet tribe, um, you know, what were their feelings and experiences there? Did they have, you know, information, which that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. Right, right. Yeah, I know. Sure could. So... Um, anyway, those were some of the tools that we used and then actually on the ground um, survey with several different people. And it was just amazing. So, you know, even if there's there, there are original, there isn't now, but there were original trail tread where you could see where travois were pulled on the landscape, likely at that point by horses. But, you know, some of the things that were found along the trail that mark where its location was and it isn't really a one trail i mean the trail is really braided people particularly when you're on horseback they're not all riding 30 people in a line you know they're kind of more it's more of a network of a trail of Mm -hmm. the alice creek drainage and we were able to find um, rock cairns and um, scarred trees where they're peeling the tree bark back so that you could eat the cambium layer, mm-hmm. um, big campsites where you're finding chipstone tools, um, and then a, a stone cross, and then also these stone forts. You know, there were just right. a lot of different resources that marked how people were using the trail and how they were experiencing it. And there was a, um, 
there's a lot of, you know, each one of those things opened the door to, you know, an arm of research, like with rock cairns, you know, are these just trail markers? Um, you know, in fact, the more that I looked into it, the cairns along different other trails, um, the Bad Pass Trail being one, um, they found all sorts of things inside, burned bone, oh, wow. pieces of pottery, wow. juniper. And so what people were doing, and then this is true um, in the Mojave Desert too, um, tribal people would leave pieces of creosote inside these cairns, which um, that was kind of an old, you know, for a prayer for safe travel. And they also served as little mini altars out on the landscape where people could stop and pray. And in fact, the segueing just a little bit back to Lewis and Clark, when they were um, coming over the Bitterroot Mountains as they were heading to the Buffalo Road, they were with Nez Perce guides who were way up on top this great vantage point who insisted on stopping and they built a rock cairn and they prayed and they smoked a pipe you know so um we did find 10 rock cairns you know along marking the trail and then uh, a stone cross which you know that people had really been puzzled over this great big made of stone and then a cross encircled in a big circle. Hmm. And, you know, looking through, again, you have to do a lot of background research before you ever step foot in the field. But in looking at um, what there was a missionary that traveled with the Salish Indians on the Buffalo Road. And in 1842, he talks about being up on this great expanse and sighting the Vespers of St. Michael because we were heading into Blackfoot territory and that he made and planted a cross because mm. we were, you know, getting ready to deal with the Blackfeet. So, you know, there's lines of evidence like that that, you know, point to what did Nicholas Point make that cross? I don't know, but we have a reference to somebody doing something similar to that. Right. Ugh, that is yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things jump out to me. One is we're scary to people, um, for sure. <laughs> and, and just um, that wonderful alignment of uh, oral history, ethnography, um, historical records from Lewis and Clark, and then that, that ground truth thing. And the way you describe the trails being more braided, I don't know the landscape over there that well in particular, but um I'm guessing that then aerial photography might not have been as helpful as it would be for some other parts of maybe like the roads in Chaco Canyon or parts of the Oregon Trail or something like that. But could you actually, were you, did you actually feel you were walking in ruts in some places? Did you actually feel you were in areas where um, you were on a significant portion of that trail where you could oh, feel it on the landscape? Time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's intact portions of the trail, and we hired um, the Salish Tippo to do the mapping work of the trail. And in fact, there was one place where a big line of trees, this line of um, pine trees growing in a row, and they immediately said, that's the old trail bed. Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, pretty amazing. And And also one of the, you know, if I might mention... Uh, aspects of this, as I have emphasized, is chronology is everything, trying to figure out the ages of some of these things. And, um, 
you know, we were able to do uh, lichen dating because a lot of the features that we found were stone. And so we were able to do lichen measurements to try and determine relative ages of some of the rock cairns, the stone fort, which I'll talk a little bit more about with the next question because it relates to oral history. Um, but the cross as well, and the, all the dates that um, were taken for the cross averaged out to be 1847, and um, Nicholas Point went through there in 1842. So again, another good line of evidence to say that, yes, you know, this probably is the cross that Nicholas Point constructed. Thank goodness for lichen, because there isn't a lot of other ways to date some of these things, unless you were luckily to find something you could date from within, you know, maybe one of these cairns, um, radiocarbon dating. But but just to also have that eyewitness account by Lewis and Clark of them building one and and praying and having offerings, I think, um, must just make that whole um, thing feel like it's really unfolding and providing a good explanation. So there's, there's something before we get to the next question. Yeah, another thing I wanted to mention about um, trails is that uh, my one of my mentors, Maria Zedeno, who's down at the University of Arizona, she's done a lot of work on Native American trails. And one of the things that really it drove home to me, too, is that, you know, as people are traveling along the trail, it isn't this kind of march in line and get to where we're going point A to point B. But along the way, there's so many opportunities for education to the younger people in the group of how do you do wayfinding? And then they are telling stories of different landmarks that they're passing as they go through an area. And so it is really it's a great group cohesion too, because you're learning about your own tribal history, your family history, what grandpa did when we walked the Buffalo Road, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. So, I mean, it also, there's culturally an aspect of trail, of working on trails that really breathes a lot of life into what that record is for Native people. Right. This will lead right into our sort of final thing that we want to ask you about, but just the way that so much um, knowledge about culture, the history, belief systems are encoded in places on the landscape um, and how, as you said, a lot of that would probably be taught as you're out moving through it. But then also how many different groups would have used these trails um, to, to cross into different territories, to head to trade and exchange events, to use them even as boundaries. There's so much interesting and fascinating function. It's Keith Basso. I can't believe I forgot that. Thank you, Crystal, for putting that in front of me. Keith, Keith Basso, Wisdom Sits in Places. It's a lovely book if, if listeners are interested. It really helps, I think, explain this whole significance of places, even if those places don't have particularly obvious remains on them, but why they're so significant um, to indigenous people uh, in this, in this part of the world. Um, So we've talked before on the dirt on the past about indigenous archeology span with Joe Watkins, with Aaron Brin, and also with your husband, archeologist Carl Davis. And so I wanted you to, as we've already alluded to talk about how your work on the Buffalo trail road, um, excuse me, Buffalo road trail 
how you see it within that framework and how it's relevant to descendant communities today in the present, because we're always interested in that in this program. Um, and specifically tribes in Montana, but also even outside of Montana, because it sounds like, you know, you had groups coming over who are not part of this state where we just drew these borders more recently. But this fact that like that, those dentalium shells that show up in Pictograph Cave came from the Pacific coast. And I always imagine them, you know, coming along with somebody along a route such as this, and then ending up maybe as part of like a, um, a gift you would give if you're entering into some marriage exchange or some other kinship, you know, um, arrangement. So, yeah. So let's, let's hear your thoughts on, on the significance of this within that framework of indigenous archeology. span Yeah. Um, it so has a place, I think within archeology, span I strongly feel that. And in fact, um, when we were doing our work on the Buffalo road, certainly worked with the Salish on, you know, what, you know, but that's a little bit of an awkward as with rock art as well as to, you know, ask people, you know, what are, what's your oral history related to this or, you know, particularly at rock art sites, how do you feel about this? What are, tell us about your most sacred feelings. I mean, that's, you know, that's really kind of not, it's so inappropriate, but at least with um, the Buffalo Road in in talking to the Salish. So when we were out in the field, we, you know, and I have had a lot of conversations with Aaron Bren, who it would talk to elders first, and then they go out in the field and look at areas and they know what to find out there and they know how to interpret it. And we actually did it the other way around, but on top of Lewis and Clark pass, you know, you have rock cairns, which are fairly limited in size, maybe two feet by two feet. But we did find these a couple different structures, which were just used massive rocks and, they also, they were not rock cairn-like at all. They, you could tell that they were structures, but they were collapsed. And we couldn't figure out, like, what, what are these? And then in dealing, talking to um, the Salish and Ponderay, they had, you know, a place name, which I think place names are huge because they relate back to their use of those areas and their traditional use of those areas. But the name for Lewis and Clark Pass was... Um, Indian Fort Pass, and that is what the um, their Salish term um, would translate to, but was a place where warriors would sit in small stone forts to watch for approaching Blackfeet raiders. Wow. Dang, I love those descriptive place names. That's just perfect. <laughs> Talk about an epiphany when you've like pondered what the heck something is out there, you know, on the landscape, and someone says something like that. Whoa. And of course, it just opened up all the this whole um, uh, this whole arena of research of looking into other areas that also along the Pacific coast on the Fraser River where people, indigenous people made forts. And it was really kind of a sign of territory, prestige. This is our place. And there's just a whole, there's so much information on that. I was blown away. But 
then ties back to this. I mean, this was the Salish were looking for Blackfeet raiders. You know, it gets into that history. And we were able to do lichenometric measurements on the forts and their dates came out to 1344 to 1655. Wow. So, uh, yeah. Really something. So in terms of indigenous archaeology, it so has a place in doing, well, I think any kind of archaeological investigation, because there's an oral history. And when you're dealing with tribes that use those areas, I think they're really the key to interpretation. And in this case, that was 100% what gave us the interpretation. So, yeah. It's very neglectful not to be dealing directly with the tribes and know their interests at this point. I think we've, we've, archaeology has come a long way um, recently. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully it has. Thankfully. Yeah. Right. Right. It's great to have individuals like Aaron Brin who are archaeologists who are working in the field and, and, you know, being the, the Crow Tippo now tribal historic preservation Mm. officer, he's in that place where it's not um, awkward for him to go and talk to his elders about these places, these sacred places, whereas it might be awkward for, for you, Sarah, or me. So it's kind of changing the whole dynamic. Yeah. And because of that, you know, we're going to know so much more about these places and learn so much more. So, so that's really great. Well, Sarah, it has been so wonderful to talk to you um, today, but unfortunately we're running out of time Can you recommend where people might find more information on any and all of the archaeological and historical sites that we talked about today? Well, thankfully, all um, the information that we talked about today is all published. Um, The information on the Buffalo Road, um, that was published in the International Journal of Historic Archaeology in 2015, So you can find it there and that's an online journal. So um, that information is there. Um, Pictograph Cave was uh, published in Plains Anthropologist in 2014. And then there was an article on the Hellgate Pictograph site in Archaeology in Montana in um, the year 2000. And also there's another article that was recently published on Pictograph Cave on the um, looking at um, dating the artifacts from the lowest level. And that was in archaeology in Montana in 2019. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks so much for all your time, Sarah. And um, you have such a lovely way of taking these very sort of complex questions we throw at you and giving us a really nice answer that's understandable to, I think, anybody who's probably listening. Um, So it's been so much fun to have you on the program. And we wish you well. And I had said your retirement question mark. Are you retired officially or? Oh, no, never. (laughs) I'm I'm repurposing myself. I'm not I'm not working for state parks anymore, but I am in a position of giving back, you know, being on the historical society board, um, volunteering for rock art projects, still wanting to having all sorts of things that I'm wanting to research and write about. So those sorts of things, but I'm not, you know, 
pounding my fist on the table about site preservation anymore. Somebody else is doing that now on your behalf. Yeah, yeah. And the person that replaced me at State Parks is just wonderful. And I think she's doing a tremendous job. Oh, that's good. I heard your husband mentioning something about wanting to do a lot of traveling. So hopefully when this pandemic is over, that's also somewhat in your future. Yeah, I actually ended my state park job and like three or four months later, COVID hit. So things have been slightly, there's been a hiatus of travel or fun things to do, but I'll get there. We'll all get there. Yeah, Yeah, we all get there. We're all itching too. I know. And so one of our our field trips will be to to Elgate. We'll see that. I'd love to take you guys there. I'm happy to do it. We would love to. That would be the best way to see it, honestly. And everyone listening to this will be jealous. Um, so, (laughs) So thanks to all of our listeners out there. And Um, Thanks you so much for joining us today. And we hope that all of you can join us again to find out more about The Dirt on the Past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We're a new podcast and we're trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>